Hello. Before we begin, a quick note. The Boy to Sleep podcast relies on you and sponsors, which means you will hear a quick advertisement before the beginning of tonight's episode. While the podcast is free, you are welcome to subscribe for just $2.99 per month, which supports the creation of this podcast and gives you an ad-free listening experience. Simply click the link in the show notes from your podcast app. Rest easy. Hello. Welcome to the Bore You to Sleep podcast. The podcast that will hopefully help you get to sleep. I am going to read an open source book, one that is not particularly interesting, but one that is hopefully boring enough to get you to sleep. Tonight's reading comes from Brick and Marble in the Middle Ages. Written by John Murray and published in 1874, this story explores architecture during the Middle Ages. My name is Teddy, and I am to help people everywhere get a good night's rest. Sleep is so important, and my mission is to help you get the rest that you need. The podcast is designed to play in the background while you slowly fall asleep. I would like to thank everyone who has reached out to me during the past week, following my recent announcement regarding Spotify's new sponsored advertisement program, which will feature at the beginning of each episode. This has come at a time where juggling the podcast and life commitments was starting to become a little challenging. My goal has always been to keep the podcast free, and I am hoping that this new opportunity will allow me to do that. The podcast has no cost, and while an advertisement at the beginning of the episode may not be a concern for some listeners, you do have the option of subscribing to the podcast for $2.99 per month. What this does is ensure you will not hear any ads at the start of the episode. You can try this now if you like on your podcast app. All you need to do is follow the link in the show notes. This is a new journey for me. I appreciate the support and understanding from all of you. I welcome any feedback, comments or queries. And you can find me at the boytosleep.com website. Of course, if the podcast is beneficial to you, then an amazing way to help is to share it with other people who need a good night's rest. And of course, leave a review on your podcast app and feel free to say hello at boytosleep.com. In the meantime, lie back, relax and enjoy the readings. Brick and Marble in the Middle Ages Notes of Tours in the North of Italy by George Edmund Street The Second Edition Preface to the Second Edition The first edition of this volume has been so long out of print 
that I had almost ceased to regard myself as responsible for all that it contains. It was the rapid and fresh summary of a happy journey undertaken in the early years of my artistic career. There were, I knew, many details in which it could easily be improved, and many journeys taken over the same ground might have enabled me to go far into detail than I was able to do when I published it. I find, however, on reading again what I wrote so long ago, that age and greater knowledge of the subject have generally confirmed my old ideas, and that, as far as regards the principles of my book, I still believe them to be true and just. In revising what I wrote, however, I have found myself obliged to make many alterations and additions, sometimes in relation to towns not visited on my first journey, sometimes in reference to buildings either not described at all or at best insufficiently described before. In doing this, I have endeavoured not to increase too much the bulk of the volume and as far as possible, not to interfere with the general character or tone of its contents. Though in the process of revision, the larger portion of the book has had to be rewritten. I hope, if other occupations admit of it, before long to add to this volume, a second containing notes of tours in the centre and south of Italy, undertaken with the same object of studying and describing the too little appreciated art of Italy in the Middle Ages, which seems to me to be almost equally full of interest in all parts of the peninsula. The materials which I have accumulated for this purpose are only too considerable and the very richness of the subject has made me shy of approaching it. But the necessity of publishing another edition of this volume has revived my resolution to complete as soon as possible the work which I originally proposed to myself and of which I have never lost sight. But whether I accomplish this or not, the volume which I now republish may, I hope, give a tolerably complete view of Italian Gothic architecture north of the Apennines. Those who wish for further archaeological details as to the age and history of buildings will not find great difficulty in supplementing what I have written. For myself, I confess at once that I have not had time or opportunity for examining the documentary history of the buildings I have described, and that the dates where I have given them are generally obtained at second hand, though never given save where they accord with the architectural character of the work.
It was never for merely archaeological purposes that I made many journeys in Italy. Before I first travelled there, I had made myself well acquainted with all the best remains of the Middle Ages in England. I had travelled sketchbook in hand through France and Germany, and I knew therefore something of the yard of our fathers in most districts north of the Alps. But so far, I had found no time or opportunity for the study of those early Italian buildings, which give the key to history and style of ours, or of those later works in which, with more or less distinctness, the architects north of the Alps repaid the debt they had previously incurred to the south. I felt then, as I do now, that no study of architecture was complete which did not proceed exhaustively with the study of all European varieties, and above all that of Italy. Moreover, there was something in the practice and tendencies of our own day which gave special interest and fascination to such a study. We had gone on in our old paths, studying the works of our own country, which in some respects were deficient in their teaching. We wished to combine the best architecture, the best painting, and the best sculpture in our works. The world seemed to respond to our aspirations, and it is south and not north of the Alps that examples of such a combination have to be looked for. So again, it was desirable at any rate to meet the demand which naturally arising for colour and construction, and here again it was in Italy, only that numerous ancient examples of such a combination were to be found. These were the special inducements to me in my earliest journey to Italy, and their influence is as strong as ever upon me. I feel indeed, even more now than then, the importance of such study to the English architect of today. The more men educate themselves by the study of ancient examples, the more is their work likely to become refined and scholarly, whilst at the same time, there is no real risk of its becoming less original. It is quite possible and one wishes above everything to see it usual for architects to design all their work without special reference to or really copying from any old work. But before doing this, they ought at least to put themselves in the same position as to knowledge of what has been done before, as that in which their forefathers were. Unless they do so, the desire for originality will only be satisfied by the production of excesses and monstrosities, which only claim is that they are new, one which, in spite of those who demand a new style, I venture to declare to be their sufficient condemnation. 
It remains only to say that since I first visited Italy two works have been published, which add infinitely to our knowledge of the sister arts of painting and sculpture, and enable the artist to travel with a full certainty that he will not lose anything by reason of ignorance or carelessness of his guide. I need hardly say that I refer to Messrs. Crow and Caffalicelle's History of Painting in Northern Italy, and also to Mr. C. C. Perkins' admirable volumes on Italian and Tuscan sculptors. To the latter, indeed. I owe, I know not how many acknowledgments for the information I have derived from him. He has done that for the history of medieval and post-medieval sculpture in Italy, which had before hardly even so much as been attempted, and his facts and conclusions are almost always so stated as to command the assent of his readers. Preface to the First Edition In these days of railways and rapid travelling, there is scarcely any excuse for ignorance of continental art. The most busy man finds some short holiday in the course of the year, and if wise as well as busy, spends it not in quiet sojourn at home but in active search of the picturesque, the beautiful, or the old in nature or in art, either in his own country or abroad. And as the holidays of busy men are short, and therefore to be made as much of as possible, I conceive that I shall be rendering some service and providing myself with a fair excuse for my presumption, if I venture to shew, by a simple narrative of a tour undertaken in the course of the last year, how much is it possible to accomplish with pleasure, and when one has some definite object in view, with profit of no common kind, even in a short holiday, There are many classes of travellers, and each doubtless flatters itself that its own is the very best of all modes of travelling, and sorry should I be to attempt to disabuse any one of the so pleasant a self-deceit. But the more I think of it, the more certain it appears that the reasons and objects which always take me away from home are precisely such as make up the sum of happiness and pleasure to a traveller. Indeed, without some definite object before him, beyond the mere desire of relaxation and pleasure, few travellers know that thorough joy of heart which an architect feels as he begins the journey, which bears him away from home, on some architectural adventure. Such an one, hard worked for more than five-sixths of the year, may, if he will, press into the short remainder left to him for a holiday, 
as much both of profit and of pleasure as it is to possibly conceive. He goes sketchbook in hand, with some ancient town of thrice noble cathedral set before him as his goal, and passing along smiling valleys or over noble mountains, drinking in all that he sees, not the less gratefully or delightedly in that he views it as the preface, only to his more intense enjoyment in the study and pursuit of his own well-beloved art. If such be my case, and such it is, wonder not, gentle reader, that I desire to shew how much enjoyment may be snatched from time in little more than one short month, nor that I am anxious to put on paper the thoughts that have been uppermost in my mind as I travelled, and looked at and drew the old builder's works in the north of Italy, the more as they seem to bear with much force upon questions debated, with more and more eagerness and anxiety, every day by very many of those who take the most lively interest in the progress of Christian art. In the past years I had travelled rapidly, it is true, but not without learning much, very much of what was useful by the noble cities of Belgium, up the church besprinkled banks of the fair Rhine, over the plains of Bavaria, and through much that was most noble and interesting in different parts of France and Germany. I had dreamt of old times and old men in the antique streets of Bruges and Nuremberg, and under the shade of the still more ancient walls of Regensburg, in the solemn naves of Amiens and Kuln, of Freiburg and Strasbourg, and of many more most noble piles. I had placed the ruins of old abbeys and studied so far as I could in all of them the science and the art of my forefathers, but so far all my time has been devoted to the study of northern art. I had found no time and no opportunity for the study of that modification of the pointed style, which distinguishes the cities and the churches of the north of Italy. No wonder then that with a prospect at last of a first sight of Italy and Italian architecture before me, I looked forward long and anxiously for the end of summer for that happy autumn which brings ease and relaxation to so many a wearied heart, and that when at last, at the latter end of August, I found myself absolutely on my way, I was in no common degree disposed for the thorough enjoyment of all that I met with. It is well here to observe, by the way, that there is much in the present position of architects and the world which may give to these few remarks upon the pointed architecture of the north of Italy, slight and sketchy though there may be, 
a degree of value beyond what they would have only a short time since. It is impossible not to feel that the great and general interest in art, created by the revival of true principles within the last few years, is a subject of the greatest congratulation to all true artists. It is not only in architecture, but happily in painting also, that first principles are now studied with some determination by men who command the respect of a world educated hitherto, to admire and believe in the falsest and weakest schools of art. It was, therefore, with the desire to see how far these first principles were worked out by the architects of the Middle Ages in Italy, how far, moreover, they were developed in directions unattempted by their brethren in the north and how far they have succeeded in leaving us really noble works for our study and admiration that I undertook my journey. Let me say too, all the same, that I started without either the intention or the desire to examine at all carefully the works of the Renaissance architects. For this there were many reasons, among others my own unfitness by predilection and education for the task. The shortness of my time and the fact that, as it appears to me, their works have already received as much both in the way of illustration and of description as they deserve. I should wish also, I must confess, in all my studies of foreign architecture to confine myself to those buildings in which there appear to me to be the germs of at least an art true and beautiful in itself, and of service to us in our attempts to improve our own work. It does not appear to me that the works of the Italian Renaissance architects really contain this. I see no reason for whatever doubting that if we wish for a purest school of art, we must either entirely forget their works, or remember them so far only as take warning by their faults and failures. I see no reason for allowing that they have succeeded in carrying out true principles, either of construction or ornamentation, to any greater extent than their imitators in England. The same falseness of construction and heaviness, coarseness, and bad grotesqueness of ornamentation seem ever to attend their works. Together with the same contempt of simplicity, repose and delicacy, which we are so accustomed to connect with them, in short, I see but little reason to differ from the estimate which Mr. Ruskin has given of their merits in The Stones of Venice, and what he has so well said I need not attempt to enlarge upon. My own feeling is 
but as in the pointed arch, we have not only the most beautiful, but at the same time, incomparably the most convenient feature in construction which has ever been, or which I firmly believe, ever can be invented. We should not be true artists if we neglected to use it. I hold firmly the doctrine that no architect can properly neglect to avail himself of every improvement in construction which the growing intelligence of this mechanical age can afford him. But this doctrine in no way hinders the constant employment of the pointed arch. On the contrary, it makes it necessary because it is at once the most beautiful and the most economical way of doing the work that has to be done. There are, I well know, advocates for the round arch, whose theory appears to be that we ought to go back for some ages, to throw ourselves as it were into the position of men who knew only the round arch, and from this to attempt to develop in some new direction, this is Mr. Petit's theory, and it is, as it appears to me, one which is not difficult to meet. Its supporters assert that pointed architecture is so essentially the effort of a particular age, and marked by certain peculiarities so decided as to be filled. Even in it, the most noble works, with a kind of spirit which in this age is vain to attempt again to evoke. The old Gothic spirit is, they say, dead, and glorious as it was. Its flight was but meteor-like, and having passed across the horizon of the world in its rapid course, it has sunk beyond all possibility of revival. It appears to me that those who so argue confound the accidents with the elements of the true Gothic architecture of the Middle Ages, and mistake altogether the object which, I trust, most architects would propose to themselves in striving for its revival. The element are the adoption of the best principles of construction and the ornamentation naturally and properly and without concealment of the construction the accidents are, as it appears to me, the particular character which individual minds may have given to their work, the savageness or the grotesqueness, as it has been called, which is mainly to be discovered in the elaboration of particular features by some particular sculptor or architect, and which in the noblest works, and indeed I might say in most works, one sees no trace of. The true Gothic architects of the Middle Ages had in short an intense love of nature grafted on an equally intense love of reality and truth. And to this it is that we owe the true nobility and abiding beauty of their works. 
nor need we in this age despond, for if we be really earnest in our work, there is nothing in this which we need to fear to miss, nothing which we may not ourselves possess if we will, and nothing therefore to prevent our working in the same spirit, and with the same results as our forefathers. The medieval architecture of Italy presents one further practical argument against this theory of the lovers of the round arch, which they cannot, I think, meet. It will be found in the following pages that in Italy there did not exist that distinction between the use of round and pointed arches, which did exist for three centuries north of the Alps. They were content there to use whichever was the most convenient, and whichever appeared to them to be most effective in its intended position. We therefore find in most Italian medieval buildings round and pointed arches used in the same work, the former generally for ornament, the latter for construction, and the effect of this in some degree to make us lessen the rigidity with such a study of northern art might otherwise affect our views on this point. But I think no argument can be used by the lovers of the round arch which would go farther than to leave us open to the choice of both round and pointed arches, just as in these old Italian buildings, they have no right to say, you may not use the pointed arch at all, but they perhaps may be allowed to ask, why exclude forever the round arch? And then I should refer them to Italy for a proof that as a rule, the mixture of the two is neither harmonious nor satisfactory, whilst at the same time, I should go on to shew them that the talk of virtues of Roman and Romanesque architecture, of the repose and the simplicity which distinguish them, of their grandeur and their general breadth and nobility of effect. In all these things, they do but sing the praises of the best Italian architecture of the 13th and 14th centuries, and that in studying the style, we may be well guided by it in what we do, not to the forgetfulness of the glories of our own land, but to the development in a forward direction of what we inherit from our forefathers, of what architecture, after a lapse of three centuries, we now see on all sides reviving with fresh vigour from its temporary grave, and which requires only prudence and skill on the part of its professors to make even more perfect than before. My object, therefore, in the following pages will be mainly to shew the peculiarities of the development of pointed architecture in Italy, and specially to shew in which the materials so commonly are used there, brick and marble, 
were introduced both in decoration and in construction. All these points are of the very greatest importance to us. For I am persuaded that not only will some reference to Italian models do somewhat toward the improvement of our art, but that in no matter is information more needed, and improvement more easy than in the use of brick in architecture, whilst working in marble has been as yet so little practised among us that we may almost regard it as present unattempted, though as I hope to shew, there is no longer any reason why this should be the case. It is impossible to conclude this preface without mention of the obligations which not only all who travel in Italy, but all who are interested in good architecture owe to Mr. Ruskin. No man need or can profess his acquiescence in every one of the opinions which he has propounded, but as an architect I feel strongly that a great debt of gratitude is owing to him for his brilliant advocacy of many laws and truths, in which every honest architect ought gladly to acquiesce. He may be well content to bear the opposition which he has evoked, satisfied that all that he has written is the main most certainly for the benefit and exaltation of art of all kinds. Nor less is a debt of gratitude to be acknowledged by every traveller, to my friend Mr. Webb for his most excellent and trusty work on continental ecclesiology. It is certainly the most absolutely correct guidebook ever drawn up for ecclesiologists anywhere, and in travelling over the same ground as I have done in this tour, my excuse for giving what I have in the way of descriptions of the same buildings is that what I have written has been all with a view, beyond that of merely describing the churches, of showing principles upon which their builders worked, and giving so far as the limits of such a work will allow, drawings of the buildings I have described. It will depend on circumstances whether I am able at some future day to continue my inquiries among the churches and domestic buildings of central Italy, a tract at least as rich as that over which the tour described in the following pages took me. It remains only to say that all the illustrations which I have given are engraved from my own drawings on the wood from my sketches made on the spot, and that I have endeavoured as much as possible to avoid giving subjects which have been before published it would have been easy to add largely to them, especially from my sketches in Venice, but it seemed to me that, as this could only be accomplished by adding also to the cost of the book, it was much better to omit them. I have avoided, therefore, giving drawings of any buildings already drawn by Mr. Galley Knight to whose work I must refer my readers for representations of several of the buildings I described, 
and for illustrations of Venice, I must refer to Mr. Ruskin's engravings, and to the photographs which have rendered her features so well known to almost all students of architecture. In conclusion, I cannot speak too highly of the assistance afforded to the architectural student by Murray's Handbook of Northern Italy. It is almost invariably correct, and gives just what one wants to know of nearly all buildings of any interest or of importance. Oxford, 1855. And that concludes tonight's reading. I hope you've enjoyed listening to this story, but I also hope that you're feeling drowsy. If you're not quite tired enough yet, please listen to another episode of the Boy to Sleep podcast. Until next time, and good night.